Hello, and welcome to Beyond Lithium, the podcast that looks at the future of clean energy storage beyond the third element. I'm your host, Nate Kirchhofer. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ben Bollinger, VP of Strategic Initiatives at Malta Inc., where they're working on grid-scale synchronous long-duration energy storage using molten salt thermal energy storage and proven power plant technology. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Nate. It's good to have you here. I'm really curious about your background and how you came to be involved at Malta. So if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and maybe what your role is at Malta, I would love to hear some more. Yeah, absolutely. I've spent my entire career in startup companies doing early stage technology development and really taking technologies from small scale benchtop science risk level up through the commercial prototype level. I started that coming out of graduate school the last year of my PhD program. I inadvertently co-founded a company with a few other people working on some DOE grants and kind of starting to tag along with a former roommate who became a fellow co-founder, going to entrepreneurship network events being put on by the, the university. And we landed a couple of VC pitches. We landed the DOE funds and that was effectively you know, created a job for myself as employee number one, working to, to get this off the ground. That company developed a long duration energy storage technology using compressed air with a isothermal process that was new and allowed for you know, massive cost reductions compared to that kind of an isothermal approach and what was out there before. So we ran that through the gamut through eight years of multiple venture capital fundraises, multiple grant efforts, multiple scale up efforts of the technology, and eventually saw the whole thing fall apart and slide down the hill on the other side as Solyndra went bankrupt in the 2014 timeframe. The clean tech space was kind of poisoned by that perception and that event, and along with some other extraneous factors as well the company ended up dissolving. So got to see the good and the bad and the ugly associated with all of that and figured that was a unique skill set that I could apply to other early stage tech companies. So wow. took some time off from energy storage, working on leading engineering for an autonomous airborne aerostat company to deploy broadband cellular to rural networks, pivoting you know, that company to focus on risks and do the early stage beta demonstrations of what needed to be done to you know, prove that the technology works and up through the pre-commercial full-size system, flying in the air, stably performing the way it needed to. And then eventually jumped back into long duration energy storage when the opportunity to join Malta came up. So that was in 2019, Malta had just spun out of Google, where it had been incubated for a number of years in the Google X technology incubator. And I came on as employee number six at that point to wrangle the engineering team and get things set on a path towards large scale commercial deployment. Yeah, it sounds like your background and skill set is well suited to sort of an early stage company. And I appreciate hearing this story a little bit too, because I'm in a similar phase of my company, of Biozen. We're early raising VC money, applying for grants, things like that. And so it's cool to see that there's an other side to the whole thing. Whether the company fails or is successful, you can come out thriving on the other side too. 
one point that I was really struck by that you made there was the macroeconomic environment is really important. You, you didn't say that directly, but when you were talking about Solyndra failing in 2014, it seems important to acknowledge that timing is really important and the general trends that we see economically. For long duration energy storage specifically, there's a lot of funding coming online through the federal government right now. And I think society has really taken hold of energy storage as an important thing. And I think that's a really good thing. I like to think of a startup company developing new technology as being led by a team of four horses. And all four of those represent different things. You know, one is advancing the technology and growing it. Another is growing and advancing the company itself as the company goes from you know, small, just a couple people to, you know, to mid-size to large size, slowly implementing larger company type policies as the need arises, as it gets bigger in order to maintain efficient workflow. The market being the third horse and the market evolution as the company is growing and, and timing that with the technology growth so that you're skating towards where the puck is going, you hope. And then policy is really the fourth one because the policy and the regulatory environment in which the company lives can have a huge impact on the ability to monetize what the, the company is developing. And for the case of long duration energy storage, that is certainly the case. And you know, any one of those four horses, if one gets too far out in front or if one falls too far behind, then the whole thing can fall apart. So it very much is a game of, of timing and advancing all those different aspects at the appropriate pace with respect to each other. I'm sort of imagining like a chariot being drawn by four horses. And if you have one of them trip and fall, it kind of throws a wrench in the gears. Absolutely. The timing and the macroeconomic environment seems really good for Malta. And so I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit more about the company's mission, some of your customers and use cases that you see maybe a little bit about your business model. I think that could be a really interesting thing to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Overall, our mission is to enable the broader deployment of intermittent renewables and help with the decarbonization energy transition. And we do that by leveraging our thermal energy storage technology and our, our expertise in that area. I think everyone can imagine that if we were 100% solar PV power, with zero carbon emissions, the sun doesn't shine at night, you need to store energy during the day in order to power you through the night. Sun doesn't shine as brightly in the winter in the Northern hemisphere. Eventually there will need to be seasonal storage incorporated there as well in order to tide that over. So we need energy storage at different timescales. In the short term, it's been two, four hour duration type timescale. The California duck curve, you need a injection of power in the morning when everyone turns their toasters on and you need an injection of power in the evening when everybody's cooking dinner and watching TV and then the daytime and the nighttime are fine. As renewable penetration increases, that no longer becomes the case. The CEO of the Electric Power Research Institute, EPRI, has started calling it the Canyon curve now because that gap has widened so much that we have eight, 10, 11 hours of near zero or negative prices in the middle of the day. And that is where long duration energy storage fits in. So our key markets are those areas where the renewables deployment is high, 
and they're really starting to see this gap of needing to shift energy from the daytime into the nighttime. So in the US, that would be Southern California, the Southwest in general, Los Angeles, Phoenix type areas. In other parts of the world, that would be the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal, which have massive amounts of solar power already deployed. North Africa and the Middle East are also very quickly emerging to be applicable markets for this. So those are the early leaders in terms of the need for energy storage. And they're kind of harbingers for where the rest of the world will go in terms of renewable penetration. Yeah, I think that those are important insights. We already have some established technology out there. We have these emerging markets, beachhead markets, if you will. They're sort of like global beachheads. And just for the listeners too, one important thing that you're talking about, this duck curve or this canyon curve, you're actually referring to the shape of the curve itself. So this is a plot of energy use over time. And maybe you can speak to that shape of that curve slightly just for edification. Yeah, this curve is the net demand. So the total energy consumed by everybody minus the amount of energy produced by renewable power. So that curve used to have a shape and it looked like a duck. Middle height in the daytime and then it would peak up to the, the head of the duck in the evening peak and then it would crash overnight and then it would ramp back up again and it had that shape of two peaks, one the tail of the duck, one the head of the duck, and then the back in between. We've gotten now to the point where the electricity production by renewable power uh, is more than the total electricity consumed by everybody. So that chart has gone negative for a good chunk of the daytime, and it no longer looks like a duck. It looks like the Grand Canyon. We have this extra power produced during the day that is either going to be curtailed, just wasted, or we're going to store it so that we can use that stored energy to power people's homes at night rather than burning gas. Sounds like the right approach. It seems problematic that the cost of energy would go to zero or even become negative. Is there an economic fallout from that? Let's say we're producing energy with solar and you actually can't make money because you've now generated so much power that there's no money flowing in to it. Is that related to the economics of this situation or am I thinking about that the wrong way? The cost going negative is a short-term thing, really, because the cost going negative is an opportunity for somebody else to make use of that power in a situation where you're getting paid to take the power. So it's poor economically for the solar PV providers, but it's good economically for either end users or consumers. In countries like Sweden and Norway and others that have real-time pricing for consumers, they can choose and get paid to charge their electric cars at night rather than paying a lot to charge it during the day. And they can set your dishwasher to 2 a.m. so that you're making use of the lowest cost electricity. So that will inherently flatten out that curve. Mm. But for energy storage, that negative price or those low prices is an opportunity for charging so that you can then sell the power back and discharge at night when the prices are higher. Gotcha. Yeah, it seems like it aligns incentives to flatten out that curve overall. We're going to be able to pay back the solar array better and have people use cheaper power better by flattening out the demand curve overall. Am I yep. thinking about that correct? Yep. That's awesome. And so Malta is helping us do that. 
And I would love to dive into your technology a little bit. I know that it is molten salt, it's thermal energy storage, but it's also electrical in and electrical out. And I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about how it works. Yeah, the multi energy storage technology is round trip electrical. So we're electricity in, we store the energy and then we're electricity out back to the grid. One benefit that I'll get to later is that we're not just electricity out, we're also heat out. So we're a net producer of heat as part of that process. And that can be an additional revenue stream for the economics of the projects. It's also a way to decarbonize certain industrial sectors, providing heat to tomato greenhouses or to pulp and paper plants or drywall manufacturing plants to provide the heat that they need rather than having them burn fossil fuels for that. It works by combining a heat pump with a heat engine with high temperature thermal storage. And I'll talk about each of those pieces. Starting at the end, the heat engine, that term may not be familiar for many people, but a heat engine is effectively what every coal plant, gas plant, nuclear plant is. Those power plants have a heat engine that takes heat produced by burning coal or gas or nuclear fission and runs that heat through a thermodynamic power cycle to drive an electric generator and produce electricity. The multi-heat engine is the exact same as those approaches used in traditional fossil plants. Only instead of taking heat from burning fossil fuels or nuclear fission, we're taking heat from high temperature molten salt that is heated because we charged it up to a high temperature the day before. So that molten salt is our thermal storage piece. Uh, that second piece, that's a technology that we've stolen from the concentrated solar power industry. Folks have seen those CSP power towers where all the mirrors in the desert are all pointed towards that one point on top of a tall tower, that's bright, glowing, hot. That tower is heating molten salt and storing that molten salt in a pair of high temperature molten salt tanks so that that concentrated solar power can collect the solar energy through the mirrors into the salt during the day and then run their heat engine to produce power 24 seven. We're doing that exact same thing in terms of storing the heat in high temperature molten salt. The difference there is that instead of charging with sunlight reflected off of mirrors onto a power tower, we're instead charging that system with electricity coming in. And that is the heat pump portion of our power cycle that we use for charge. Most people know heat pumps by different names. The refrigerator in your home is a heat pump. The air conditioner in your living room is a heat pump. All of those things are powered off of electricity and they're moving heat from a colder location to a hotter location. You know, in the case of the refrigerator, it's moving heat from the inside of the box to the back of the refrigerator. And that's why the back is so hot. So for Malta, we're doing that same thing. We're powered off the grid, pulling electricity in, and we're moving heat from a pair of cold coolant tanks up to that pair of hot molten salt tanks. And we're charging up a hot, hot tank and a cold, cold tank that can be used to store that thermal energy and later used to run the heat engine when we go into discharge. Let me just be clear about this. You're not taking solar thermal energy and directly piping it into the molten salt, you're using renewable power to generate this heat difference. Is that correct? 
Exactly. So we are able to do for solar PV what the hot molten salt tanks have been able to do for concentrated solar power with the mirrors, which means we no longer need mirrors in the desert pointing at a tower. We can now take solar PV that's deployed anywhere you know, on people's roofs or on, on flat Walmart buildings and run our heat pump to charge up those same molten salt tanks and create that same 24-7 consistent power output that concentrated solar power can do, but with cheaper, deployable anywhere solar PV. That's amazing. And it's probably good too, because those big solar towers are pretty hard to look at. I imagine they're sort of problematic for pilots because there's a lot of sunlight actually being concentrated into a spot. How long can one of these thermal energy molten salt storage systems discharge for? So that all depends on how big we make the tanks. One key differentiating factor of, I'd say, all long duration energy storage technologies is that they separate the power piece of the equipment from the energy piece of the equipment, which is different from lithium ion cells, where it's all jammed together in one cell. And if you want eight hours instead of four hours, you put two of them there and you double your cost to go to a longer duration. Whereas with Malta, a lot of the cost is in the power island, that heat pump and that heat engine that does the conversion from electricity to thermal energy and back to electricity. And the cost of the thermal storage itself, the molten salt tanks and the coolant tanks is a relatively low incremental cost. So we can go from 10 hours to 20 hours to 30 hours with a modestly small incremental cost on top of that and really tailor duration of discharge for particular applications. Solar PV applications generally like to have 12, 14 hours of storage, evening, nighttime, into the morning in terms of when it runs in discharge. Wind applications generally favor 20, 25, sometimes 30 hours of duration because of the, the wind profile is different from solar. You've got a couple of non-windy days on occasion before the wind blows for a few days, and that pattern lends itself to a slightly longer duration. And Malta can tailor to all of those at low incremental cost and have vastly better economics for those longer durations than based technologies like lithium-ion can provide. I think that's a really powerful insight. And we see this across all sorts of industries. It's actually a thermodynamic limitation for something like lithium-ion or sodium-ion batteries where the power and the energy are tied together because the lithium is the electrode and the reactant that's providing the energy storage. If you can have your marginal costs be low for increasing your capacity, like what you're talking about, then it really allows you to serve these longer-duration timescales and we need all types. And I think this is an interesting segue into another question that I have for you, which I'm really curious what your insights about it would be. What do you think the biggest challenge is in alternative energy storage, especially for the next, you know, five, 10 years, say through 2030, what do you think the biggest challenge is? The largest challenge I would say is on policy and remuneration for the benefits that the technology can provide. I like to think about it in terms of long duration energy storage, having its own sandbox. Lithium ion batteries really took off for grid scale storage in the 2011, 2013 timeframe as transmission system operators, regional entities put in place different categories to compensate them for the value that they could bring. 
PJM implementing Reg D was really kind of the tip of the spear on that, where batteries got paid more because they could do more and respond faster than gas turbines could, which were the sandbox that they had been playing in. And that really allowed batteries to take off in terms of providing primary frequency response to the grid. Long duration storage is in a similar boat today where it's playing in the sandbox for lithium ion batteries or it's playing in the sandbox for gas turbines, but it has a set of attributes that really need to all be recognized in the market structures that are there in order to create the value the project developers looking for to cause deployments to become widespread. Couple of examples there. In certain places, energy storage still needs to be classified as either transmission or generation, and it's not really either. A great example that I love is in Germany, up until last year, there was no legal classification for energy storage. It was either a power plant when it was discharging or is legally classified as a end user load, like a factory or something, when it was charging. So it actually toggled back and forth in terms of its legal categorization and the regulations that it was held to, depending on what mode of operation it was in, which is a nightmare from project developer perspective. So those kinds of things need to be worked out in order to recognize the value add and the attributes that long duration storage has in order to improve the project economics. Wow. What a mess from a regulatory and operational perspective. That would just be super challenging to navigate because if the wind starts blowing, you change into a different type of operation. (laughs) The bright side is that everybody is recognizing this now. California had an incident a couple of years ago where they called upon batteries to supply emergency peak because they were having shortfalls in production. And the batteries only had two and a half hours of discharge capacity in the tank, if you will, even though they were nameplate for our duration. And actually worsens the scenario once the batteries ran out. So they were counting on those for nameplate capacity and it fell short. So the need is now recognized. We need longer duration for some of these scenarios. And in order to get that, there needs to be the the remuneration mechanisms for that. In terms of cost, synchronous inertia is a topic that I really like to talk about. Gas plants, coal plants, when they produce a kilowatt hour of electricity, they're also providing load following capability, the ability to turn their power output up and down to follow people's consumption of electricity. They're also producing synchronous inertia, which is the physical rotating things on the grid that keep the grid stable at 60 hertz. And they're providing resiliency for events like plants coming online or other power plants dropping off and fluctuations, they absorb those. Those other attributes are not separately paid for. They're kind of all bundled up in that payment for the kilowatt hour. And when we look at solar and wind, they're getting paid that same amount for that kilowatt hour, but they're not providing those other services. Mm. And that's been okay up to date as utilities and transmission system operators have effectively suspended down their surplus capability and all those other attributes and installed really inexpensive solar and wind to decrease overall the electricity prices for consumers, which is great. But in many of these areas now, 
they've spent down their excess in mm -hmm. those additional grid stability attributes. And the need is now arising to figure out how do we replace those with something other than spinning gas turbines. And that's where technologies like Malta come in that can provide those same synchronous inertia, short circuit current, resiliency, the other grid stability attributes that really complement the clean kilowatt hours that are produced by solar and wind. One thing that strikes me about what you're talking about in terms of policy and in terms of the way the grid actually works is that it doesn't seem like the sort of problem that one company could solve. I'm constantly amazed that the grid stays up and running 24-7. I think a lot of people don't know that there's just constant changes happening. If a solar array comes online, we've got to deal with that voltage and make sure it doesn't shut everything down. And I think as the VP of Strategic Initiatives at Malta, maybe this is a really well-suited question for you. What do you think the right way is to approach overcoming this challenge of policy in addition to how the grid works? Is there a strategic way that we could maybe form a consortium of companies or something? How do you see approaching this policy and technology conundrum? So good news is a lot of that is already underway. In terms of long duration energy storage, there has existed now for the past two or three years, an entity called the Long Duration Energy Storage Council. And the purpose of that nonprofit organization is to advocate for the exact kind of things that we've been talking about. The you know, recognition of the attributes that long duration storage provides into the grid and really help make it you know, front and center in people's minds. And uh, there's been success there. There's been success in other areas as well. You know, long duration storage really has become part of the public vernacular in a way that it was not 24 months ago. In terms of the nitty gritty details, it does get down into the weeds really hard, really fast on a lot of the grid stability attributes. Things that even technology centered people have a hard time wrapping their heads around a lot of times because they're not specifically power engineers. But the folks who do wrap their heads around that on a day-to-day -day basis are doing that and are monitoring that. The National Electric Reliability Council has come out with updated guidelines over the course of the past few years in order to make sure that new technologies are being appropriately evaluated in integrated resource planning as utilities and power producers look towards the resource mixes that they're having in the future the transmission system operators are looking at some of those key attributes that they're worried about, like synchronous inertia. For example, down in Texas, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council area, has been monitoring what they call critical inertia for years and years now and looking at whether the whole grid has enough inertia, enough spinning, rotating, generating assets on the grid to prevent the grid from collapsing if their two nuclear plants go offline at the same time. So they're making sure that that won't happen. Right now they're doing it by making sure that a gas plant is spinning to provide that. You know, I'd like for that to be them spinning a multiplant, but that's coming. And as the retirements of fossil assets accelerates, the need for the replacement of these attributes becomes more and more dire. And folks are starting to think about how do they incentivize that. National Grid in the UK has compensation mechanisms in place now for fast response and synchronous inertia in order to incentivize that. 
they're currently in discussions in Australia on what new policies and regulations need to be put forward in order to make sure that those attributes remain in sufficient quantity for grid stability there. In Spain, they've taken a hard position on short circuit current, node by node on the grid, to make sure that there is enough of that capability at each location on the grid so that brownouts don't happen if clouds come over the solar PV panels. Measures are being put in place to prevent these, but it's going to take time and it's going to take first movers. It's going to take other folks looking at the experiences of the first movers. The utility industry is in general a very conservative, slow-moving industry, and for good reason. I mean, they've kept our lights on very reliably for the last 150 years. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about gives me the sense that you have this really excellent global perspective on things. I hadn't heard about some of these changes in Spain and, and other places. And I know that Malta has successfully won some grants. I believe you got one from the German government. I know that you've been very involved in the United States grant fundraising scene. I'm curious if there are any upcoming projects or announcements that you're excited to let the listeners hear a little bit about. Are there any specific ones that you think will help with this transition from fossil fuels to this global resilience that we're talking about here? The exciting announcement that came recently at COP28 a couple of weeks ago was that we closed another round of funding, which was terrific. We brought Siemens Energy on board as an investor, in addition to them already being a strategic partner on the, the turbine machinery side. So they join another group of you know, high caliber uh, investors that also includes our heat exchanger strategic investor, Alpha Laval, as well as Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' climate fund for investing in, in new clean technologies. So that was very exciting to announce there. On the project development side, we are advancing a number of different balls down the field simultaneously because project development comes in fits and spurts and is difficult. Another challenge going back to your earlier question is on the project financing side for small startup companies to do 100 megawatt scale projects are inherently nine figure sized projects. And that's not something that comes through venture capital equity funding in a startup company. That comes through separate project financing. That project financing comes with requirements on guarantees and warranties, which startup can say they're going to offer, but doesn't have the deep pockets to follow through. So it's not worth the, the paper it's printed on. Assembling the consortium of players in that kind of a project development is, is critical and takes a lot of discussions and a lot of negotiations to move things forward. So we do not have all of our eggs in one basket. We have a number of opportunities around the world, really, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe and in the Middle East now as well, that we're working on to move forward with the deployments of those large projects. It sounds like you guys have about as much momentum as you can. I know you mentioned that utilities are generally slow, but as we move away from fossil fuels, which should be one of our goals to prevent additional heating of the planet or climate change in the planet, we need this resilience that you're talking about. I am glad that there's a ton of investment coming in through these international organizations and especially to an organization like Malta. It sounds like you guys can really make a difference in providing this 
synchronous inertia and keeping the grid resilient as we decommission some of these fossil fuel resources. If there's somebody listening right now that's interested in getting in touch with Malta, maybe thinking about a project for their community or something like that, what is the best way to go about getting in touch with you or Malta? I'd say for anyone who's looking to get in touch with Malta, email info at maltainc.com. We monitor that all the time. We'll direct it to the appropriate person. And I suppose we can just find you on LinkedIn or something like that. This has been really insightful. One final question for you. You came from this perspective of being in a small scale startup. Now you're in a big organization. Do you have any advice for other professionals that are maybe looking to make a similar transition or looking to get started in clean tech in general? There's a lot of excitement in clean tech. So I'd say the overall advice that I'd have is dive in and find a niche that fits you and is exciting is the advice that I would give. On the startup company side for you know, folks in large established industries looking to get into, into startups, I would say be open to the fact that a startup is a roller coaster and has its ups and its downs and can be a little disorganized, but is very fast paced. And that's an exciting environment to, to work within because it's pushing the boundaries and move fast and break things is kind of the mantra behind it. And that's how things get figured out. And that's how you know, we lay the groundwork for figuring out the next steps as we move the industry forward. Yeah, I think that's powerful insight. It's okay to fail, right? I mean, that's how we invent things. Well, with that, I want to wrap up this episode. I really appreciate you spending time with me today, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity, Nate. It was a great conversation and I look forward to speaking again at some point in the future, if that's in the cards. I hope it is. I'll talk to you then. And thanks to you for tuning in. Again, I'm Nate Kerjopper, co-founder and CEO of BioZen Batteries, which produces this show as part of the Clean Power Media Group. My guest today was Ben Bollinger, VP of Strategic Initiatives at Malta, Inc. If you'd like to interact more, please visit cleanpower.media or send us an email at hello at biozenbatteries.com. Please write a comment, like, follow, share, or even leave us a voice message on your favorite episodes. Many thanks to Curtis Worden for the great theme music and Abe Mesrich for helping with all the little things behind the scenes. Be sure to join us next time on the Beyond Lithium podcast. Thank you.